Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. This is your host, Gorda Van. On this episode, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Craig Nicholson, otherwise known as uh, the Intrepid Snowmobiler. And uh, co-hosting with me today is Phil Molto. Now, Phil Molto is the new uh, host of the uh, Snowmobile Television, and uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Phil uh, what's coming up uh, in the upcoming 2014-2015 season on Snowmobile Television. But first, we're going to be uh, hearing from uh, Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler, and in between uh, these uh, interviews, I have uh, another interview that I did with uh, Mike Caswell from Icebreaker Merino Wool, and he talks about uh, uh, base layering for uh, for snowmobiling. So I hope you find that uh, quite uh, in, in informative. Uh, I, I love this stuff. It's uh, great, uh, great clothing. I've been using it for years in my multi-sport uh, events. So uh, snowmobiling podcast. It can be uh, heard on iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, and all the other episodes are on there. Uh, some great uh, interviews with uh, the past legends of snowmobiling, our past one, uh, Yvonne de Hommel, and also on SoundCloud. And on SoundCloud, uh, uh, there's uh, apps uh, for SoundCloud and uh, iTunes where you can uh, uh, download these episodes and others and uh, basically listen to them on your smart device on uh, in your uh, automobile, a truck, uh, whatever, uh, airplane, whatever. Um, it's, it's not streamed and you can download it right to your device. So, uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll do that and, uh, and, uh, subscribe to, uh, on iTunes and, uh, and follow on, uh, on SoundCloud. And, uh, if you uh, would like to uh, contact me, I can be contacted at snowmobilingpodcast at gmail.com. So here's, uh, our interview with Craig Nicholson, the intrepid snowmobiler. Hello, I'm Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler, here to go snowmobiling with the Ontario Federation of Snowmobile Clubs. Grooming snowmobile trails costs big money for fuel, insurance, maintenance, and repair, while buying a tractor and drag can easily cost over $200,000. Trail operations are more expensive for snowmobile clubs requiring additional groomers, so it's crucial for every trail rider to help out by paying their way. Until next time, find out more at IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. That's IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. And we have uh, Craig Nicholson and Phil Molto on the line today, who is going to be co-hosting with me today. And uh, Craig, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm sitting here, and it's uh, snowing away. First good sign of winter here in Toronto, where I live, and uh, things are looking up. Yeah. And Phil, how you doing? I'm I'm doing well. I'm on the uh, other end of the uh, southern Ontario, where I've got about a, a half an inch of snow at best. So I've, I'm really going to be pouting a lot during this interview. So you have to bear with me on that. Yeah, yeah. How, how will we notice the difference? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I uh, know Phil is very, uh, he's very upbeat. He's, this is, this is going to be a fun interview, and uh, really looking forward to uh, talking with you today, Craig. Uh, um, so, Craig, um, when, did, when did you begin uh, snowmobiling? Well, it, it was certainly uh, sometime in the 80s, and I, I went to a friend's cottage in the winter up in Muskoka, which he lent to us. He was not there. And I happened to notice in the garage there were two old yellow snowmobiles. I was smart enough to know they were snowmobiles. And, and I called them and said, do those things work? You know, and, and is it okay if I take them out? He said, oh, yeah, sure. If you can get them started, go, go ahead. So I got them working, and um, we went out and, and basically rode snow-covered roads. I had no idea whatsoever that there were anything like trails. Um, and so, you know, we just rode the cottage roads and, and had a blast and, and uh, actually went to his cottage as, as a result of liking his snowmobiles <laughs> two, two or three times that winter. And, and that was really w- where I got hooked and, and, and started deciding, well, this is something that 
I better have for myself, not the cottage, the snowmobiles. Um, so that's that's where it got started, and that, and so it, it it was the same as as really every other snowmobiler. I mean, I got in, into it for the love of being out in the winter, for the love of riding a snowmobile, just that, that the great feeling of, of exhilaration and, and, and excitement of doing that. What uh, what year was that? Oh, I don't know. I would say I would say you know mid early to mid 80s something like that yeah so the pictures were in color not black and white <laughs> <laughs> well the snow bills were in color yeah. and, uh, I, i'm gonna jump in for a second Craig, and i got i gotta looking back um the history of organized snowmobiling because you hit it right on uh, on the on the nail there a lot of people thought snowmobiling was either rode on the lake or rode on the road how you know let's go for a trip back in time how how this whole organized snowmobiling get started with OTBA, OFSC, individual private clubs to what we have today? Well, it's interesting you say that because it, it was exactly that. It, it was people that bought a snowmobile back in the heydays when snowmobiles were selling like hotcakes and, you know, all of a sudden really discovered that they really didn't have any place to ride that was either legal or, or safe or, or wasn't causing trouble with their neighbors. And so, you know, you got a bunch of guys get together and say, well, you know, where are we going to ride this weekend? And the next step to that is, well, you know, we're going to ride together, and, and we do that every weekend. And so you kind of get a loose club of, of people that get together. And then, then you start to think about, well, geez, maybe if we, you know, develop some places where we can actually ride our snowmobiles, um, we'll get people off our backs, and we won't be, you know, accused of trespassing, and it'll be, you know, safer and, and legal. So club by club in various parts of particularly Snowbelt, that's what happened, and and it was just a casual thing that people got together just to have some fun and, and to have a place to ride. And then the next step to that, of course, is along the line that you've got a couple of clubs, you know, that are near one another, and so the next thing is, well, geez, maybe we should link up with those guys, you know, that are 20 kilometers away, and maybe we could ride back and forth and, and, and uh, you know, have an experience in another town. And before you know it, you've got a linked trail system across the province that that is that was built from the ground up, club by club by club. And that's Interesting, the uh, timeline when you look at different regions. Uh, in Ontario, you had some clubs in some counties and some regions that were far ahead of others, but then at the same time in Quebec, there was already a, a province-wide network of trails existing. You, you, you've probably seen the development then of some regions that had to play catch-up and others that were so far ahead. Yeah, and, and a lot of that has to do with, quite frankly, how much snow they get, how often. Um, you know, there, there's some parts of, of Ontario that are, you know, get a lot of lake effect snow and get a lot of snow early and, and, you know, it lasts fairly long. And quite frankly, there's not maybe much else to do there in the winter. Like, you know, they don't have any ski hills or anything. So, so what are people going to do? And, and, and also areas where, you know, tourism was relatively big. So a place like Muskoka or Halliburton. Um, and, and so you end up with, uh, faster development in those areas, um, and places where it's where it's more difficult are, are places like where you live, so you know in southwestern Ontario, where all the land is owned, and, and so you've got to go property by property, by landowner by landowner to get the permissions to put the trails through, and, and so it's a, you know it's a lot longer process and, and more difficult to do. And, uh, um, um, around the uh, the more or less the northern regions of, of Ontario. Do you think uh, the businesses drove this uh, this action to uh, to organize trails, or um, what type of business do you think uh, actually started all this? 
Well, there, there, was, there was certainly some of that uh, in, involved in, in, in pockets. Um, but really, there were, there were a group of people back in the early 90s, um, snowmobilers, who had, had a vision. Um, and one of them was, was Don Lumley, who later became president of the OFSC. And, and the vision was that, hey, we're here in northern Ontario. We have snow all the time. We have all kinds of old logging roads and corridors and abandoned rail lines. This could be our, our premier product if we could just get our act together. And so they, they did a bunch of town hall meetings and, and meetings with municipalities and folks all around northern Ontario and came up with a study and, and took the study to the government and, and actually ended up with a whack of dollars um, in the early 90s, I'm going to say 92, 93, that put what we now know in Ontario as the top trail system in place. And, and that was primarily an initiative for funding trail development in northern Ontario, although it did trickle down to other parts of the province. But that's when the top trail system was put into place, and it was uh, motivated by snowmobilers and snowmobilers who convinced their communities that this was a great thing to do for economic reasons. I'll, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. Um, when did the OFSC uh, first uh, begin? Uh, 67, I think, was the, was the first year it was incorporated. There were about 14 or 15 clubs, primarily in central Ontario, who, who got together realizing that they needed some kind of a voice bigger than any one of them and that they were all too busy trying to get their trails together to, to do any kind of you know, lobbying or government liaison, and, and there was, you know, some other pressures that were coming in because, you know, as snowmobiling started to become organized, it also started to attract some attention from people like the Ministry of Transportation, the Ministry of Natural Resources, um, and so there was a necessity to have some entity in place to deal with, with the bigger picture, and, and so that's where they formed the OFSC, and of course, then it went on to become virtually every snowmobile club in the province. Uh, so today it's, I think, 212 clubs. I see. That, that must have been quite a challenge back, uh, that must have been in the early 70s, wouldn't it be? Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say that because I think that if we did not have the snowmobile trails in the province of Ontario, or anywhere for all that matter, whether it's Minnesota, Wisconsin, Quebec, wherever it is, if, if we were sitting here today with snowmobiles, but the snowmobile trail system was not in place, I don't think we could do it today. I don't think we could get the volunteers today. I don't think we could get the club organization today. I don't think we could get the dollars today. I don't think we could get the same kind of cooperation that we got. And, and so it, the fact that the trail system in one way or another has been together for between 40 and 50 years, we're all living with, with the benefit of that legacy. Um, and, and those people that, that came before us, that, I mean, they, they weren't you know, trying to create a provincial trail system. They were trying to create places for them to ride locally. But that motivation created this provincial system that I don't think we could duplicate today. Yeah, urban, urban sprawl is becoming quite, quite a problem uh, um, everywhere, I suspect, in, whether in the, like you say, in the United States or Ontario or, uh, you know, B.C. Yes. Um, you know, it would be, it'd be very difficult to organize uh, trails uh, nowadays. Um, so when did, when did you get involved with um, your, your, I guess, your, your kind of job now uh, in, in the media and uh, the OFSC? Well, 
I, I came out of out of university um, with a BA in history, which are, is about as much use as what do they say, a submarine with a screen door. Um, but, but one thing I came out of, of university with, uh, I, I'd been involved at university in uh, the rock and roll business, so actually from high school, I, you know, booking bands and doing dances and stuff. And when I came out of university, I actually went into the rock and roll business and, and for over 20 years was, was in the rock and roll business as a manager of rock bands. Um, and I came to a point finally where I said to myself, the reason I got into this was to make some money and because it was fun. And I, w I was making the money, but it wasn't fun anymore. And so I said, okay, so, so what else can I do from here on with my life? I don't want to, anybody to be my boss. I want to be my own boss. What else can I do? What else am I interested in? So the, the two things that, that were at the top of my list were cottaging, because I had a cottage by that point, and snowmobiling. And so I, I took a lesson from a lot of the stuff I'd, I've learned in the rock and roll business about promotion and marketing and, and you know, how, how to make something from nothing, as it were, um, and started writing a, a cottage column called The Intrepid Cottager. Um, and I, I went around to newspapers around the province and self-syndicated it and, and had uh, 60 or 70 newspapers that were running that weekly. Um, and then from there, started to write a winter column called The Intrepid Snowmobiler that also appeared in weekly newspapers around the province. And, and that uh, was kind of what attracted the owners of Snowgore Canada magazine at that point to contact me and say, you know, you seem to be writing a lot about snowmobiling. Do, you know, do you want to write an article or two for us? And and so I said, sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, not having any idea really what I was getting into. Um, and so from that point on, I've been writing for Snowgore Canada Magazine ever since. Um, and and now have the Intrepid Snowmobiler on radio, which which is on, I guess, 65 stations in Ontario and, and about another 60 stations in other provinces. Um, and, and do a whole lot of other things in the snowmobile business, uh, not the least of which is doing communications for the Ontario Federation of Snowmobile Clubs. So I wear a lot of different hats and, and a lot of different contacts and basically spend my entire winter snowmobiling. Um, like, like this winter, I start on the uh, 27th of December and I, I've got tours virtually back to back until March 22nd. Um, and if you ask me on any given day between then where I'm going to be, I can tell you exactly where I'm going to be. And and it's people often say to me, you know, boy, I wish I could, it was you, I'd love to have your job and everything. And and, and it is fun, and, and I wouldn't give it up for the world. But it's also a whole lot of work. Um, the organizing of it, uh, the preparation of it, like I've, I've been doing preparation for this winter and, and for the tours that are coming up this winter since Labor Day. Um, and getting everything as well organized as I possibly can so that when I actually hit the snow, I don't have to be worrying about all of the details. I can just go and, and relax and ride the ride and, and have the experience and have the fun so that I can actually write the article. Um, because what I try to do with the articles is, is to ride for the reader. And so what I mean by that is, I want to look at it from through the eyes of just an average rider, and so you know, what are they going to expect and see and feel and experience from this particular ride, 
and, and what are they? What kind of information do they expect me to, to give them? Um, so at the end of it, when that article is published in Snowgore magazine, the riders should be able to pick that article up, read it, and take the itinerary that's with that article and go and ride it and just follow the itinerary. And we, so one of the, some of the crawlers of that are. I just got off the phone with, with someone over Earway, Phil, in, in uh, Neuro and Sound, where I'm going to do a ride this winter. And they were asking about having some local guys ride with me. And I said, no, absolutely not. Because if I can't find my way, then the reader is not going to be able to find their way. So when I do a tour and write the article, the reader can be assured that we found our way and that it was an, an easy thing to do to find their way around. That's the first thing. The second thing is that with many snowmobiling media, when you look at the photos and the stories or, or, or the, the, the video on the, on the television show, you won't see any saddlebags. And, and the reason for that is because they've got a support vehicle following them around. We don't use a support vehicle. We ride like a rider does. We carry everything we need with us on the sleds, in saddlebags, and, and ride the day, whether it's an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day, whatever it turns out to be, and go to the hotel at night and unpack our saddlebags, and the next morning get up and put them all on the sled and go again. So I try to make it as, as real an experience as possible so that when the rider reads that story, they can, they can actually picture themselves doing that. Thing was 
to, to a great extent, tourism-driven, and to a great extent, hospitality owners realizing that, geez, there's a, there's a market here of people that don't come by car and that actually like being out in the winter, which is, which is of course, their, their slowest time of year. And so how can we capture that? And along with that, Craig, I think you've also seen a big change in the, uh, in the mechanics of the snowmobile design and how it allows you to do that from, you know, the 80s to the 90s to today, where the comfort, the ride, the ability to go all day and not just not be totally beaten down. How, how have you seen the, uh, the change in sleds affected destination riding? For sure. So, so the big change is the destinations are a lot further apart now. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, the destinations might have been, you might have been pushing it to do 100 kilometers, um, both in terms of, of, the, of the quality of, of the trails and in terms of, of what the sled was capable of doing. Um, and, and as that technological improvements happened to the sleds, riders were able to go further and further. And of course, one of the big improvements is in terms of fuel economy. Um, and you know, we're at a point now where the fuel economy is, is, is incredible. Like I'm riding a, a Skidoo uh, Renegade Adrenaline 900 Ace this year, as I did last year, and fully loaded with my weight and, and all my gear and, and studded and everything, I'm getting you know, 330 to 340 kilometers to a tank of gas. So then that's a huge range. I mean, essentially, for a lot of days of, of touring, destination riding, I could fill up in the morning and not fill up until I arrive at my destination. Now, I don't do that because I always want to make sure I have some extra gas just in case. But you couldn't do that 20 years ago. For sure, yeah. Um, okay, uh, Craig, um, you, meant, you mentioned how you, uh, you plan all your, your trips uh, you know, back in uh, Labor Day. Uh, I think maybe the date was. Um, how do you uh, how do you go about uh, uh, rounding up all your trips? Do you make all your calls to to the lodges and and you know what have you you know for each trip and and, and map out the, the trip that you're going to do or like right to the day? Pretty much. Um, the first thing I do is look at what I've done over the last ten or fifteen years in terms of articles that I've written for Snowgore because I don't want to go back to the same destinations back to back and 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 so you know that determines to some extent where I'm going to choose to ride that particular winter. Um, or an, er an area that may have something that's specifically newsworthy. Like last year I rode in La Nodier, Quebec, um, where they had just had a $3 million trail reroute to, to remove trails from some provincial parks and, and to build them elsewhere. And, and so there was a story there. So I did, did that as part of the tour. But So essentially then I, I make a decision in, in terms of the areas that I need to ride and the provinces I need to ride because, you know, like this isn't just the Snow Goer Canada is a national magazine. So, it's, you know, it's not just Ontario stories or just Quebec stories. It's got to be a variety of, of provinces and a variety of different experiences. Albeit, most of the stuff I do is trail riding because that's the kind of riding that I most enjoy. So then, having made that decision, I, I'm in touch with the tourism people in the area to, to see if they're interested in, 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 in me coming to do that. And, and now I have, obviously, a, a lot of contacts. So depending on the situation, it's either the tourism people that put it together or I call the hotels with you know, operators that I know and, and, and help put it together. Um, and, and typically, the, the actual itinerary itself, I develop because, because I've got the maps and I, and I know how long I want to ride each day, 
and where I want the tour to go. So rather than relying on someone else, whether it's an operator or a tourism office, who may not be snowmobilers, um, I as a snowmobiler want to put the tour together so that it's real for the readers, so that it's something the readers can do. Um, and, and so part of that too is there's a, lot, there's a number of people that are real avid riders and want to ride 400 kilometers a day. But, but they're the exception. And, and I enjoy riding 400 kilometers a day, but most people don't want to ride 400 kilometers a day. Most couples don't want to ride 400 kilometers a day. So I've got to, to, to put a tour together that is doable by the average snowmobiler. And, and they, can, they may be able to add some miles to that by, by doing a, another loop that, that, that is available, or they may be able to make it shorter by going a little bit more direct than, than we went. But generally, in most cases, say if I'm riding a 300-kilometer day, the reader would have the option of making that a 225-kilometer day and still stay in the same destinations or make it a 350-kilometer day and still stay in the same destinations, just taking slightly different routes. Right, so you kind of, uh, you, you, you do add optional uh, extra loops, like uh, some, some trails around, you know, parts of town or something like that, to, and, and then come back to that final destination for the day. Right, and, and the other thing, too, is, of course, the, you know, the thing with snowmobiling, right across the board, is weather. I mean, you know, Mother Nature can either make it or break it. So when I'm sitting there in October, and, and even into November, finalizing a tour, I got no idea what, what's really going to happen once we get out there. Um, and so, you know, the kinds of things that obviously can happen is you have a like a major thaw that week, and you can't do that tour, or you can't do parts of that tour, or on the other end of it, you have a huge blizzard and snowstorm, and the trails are obliterated, and 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 you know, so you're down for a day or two. So you've, so you've got to set the tour up in such a way that you can still pull it off and still have a viable tour that a reader can do regardless of what the weather is. Right, right. Um, you hit me an interesting point there, Craig. I was going to ask you about it, and that, that is the weather. Um, and also along with that, when people are booking or they have been on a trip to an area and they want to find out about trail conditions or they've had a, either a good or a not so good experience with trail conditions and they're talking to you at a show, what, what, what is your conversation like with them about, you know, if they've had, you know, different conditions? Well, my conversation is that your expectation has always got to be that trail conditions are going to be variable because regardless of how good a job the volunteers and the clubs do, they're up against Mother Nature and they're up against terrain. And, and you can only do so much in, in a natural setting. And so, you know, they may have, based on a budget that's set, groomed three times a week and depending on Mother Nature, depending on traffic, whatever, when you ride that trail, it may not be perfect. And six hours later, it is perfect. I'll give you a, a really good example of that. We rode up uh, the east coast of Labrador um, from a town whose name I can't remember, up to Goose Bay. And, and, it, and it, was a, it was a trail that, that you know, was marked and marked by Labrador standards, not by Ontario or Quebec standards, but it was marked. Um, and, it, and it had obviously been groomed, but it hadn't been groomed recently. And so the ride north was 
um, challenging. There were parts of it that were okay, but there were lots of parts where it was drifted, and, and I mean, you could, you could certainly pick the trail out, but, but it wasn't like a smooth, comfortable ride. So we get to Goose Bay, we stay overnight, and the next day we're riding back. We ride back the next day, the thing is flat as a board the entire way. I mean, it was magic. Like, like someone came down from utter space overnight and just smoothed it right out. But, it, but that really hit home to me that, you know, it all depends on when you go. And, and there is no predicting it. And so the expectation needs to be that the trail is there and in place and marked and, and you can find your way around. And if you're lucky, it'll be exceptional for parts of the time. It'll be decent for most of the time. And occasionally it's going to be ratty as hell. Um, and that's just part of snowmobiling. And, and the solution to that is have a good suspension. And it's interesting, I, you know, I say that, I, I'm just, when, when you called, I'm, I'm writing an article about suspension. I'm not a tech guy at all, so it's not a tech article. But, it, but the, the gist of the article is that most snowmobilers, when they buy a new sled, don't do anything with the suspension. And the dealer doesn't do anything with the suspension. And yet, the OEMs spend a lot, a lot of time and effort and money making really high-tech suspensions that, unlike a car, are made to be tuned and tweaked and, and, and made to be set for the rider weight, height, seating position, what the rider's carrying, the trail conditions, all of that factor into how a suspension needs to be adjusted. So you could have the greatest sled in the world, and if the suspension isn't set right for you and your riding style, you'll have a bad experience, regardless of what the trail is like. I mean, the only saving grace is if the trail is dead flat, smooth the entire time, and you don't need a suspension. Mm -hmm. you, obviously, you obviously, like you mentioned with your, your trip to Labrador, uh, um, do, you, do you do a lot of the setup on your, on your snowmobile yourself? No. I, I'm not a tech guy at all. Yeah. Um, I've got a really good dealer that, that does a lot of that for me, and I've got a, a really good uh, suspension guy named John Sherrard from Accelerated Technologies in Buckhorn, Ontario, who knows suspension inside out, and I got a, a, actually an appointment with him in two weeks. I'm taking both sleds in with full touring rig, and he knows the kind of ride I want, and he knows the suspension, and he'll get it all set up, and that's it. That, that's his job. My job is to go and ride. Right. Perfect. Perfect. Um, okay, Phil. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push one of Craig's buttons here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's, here's, a, here's a question I know Craig loves to answer, and that is when, when, when people are looking for trails and they're saying, how come, those, how come these trails aren't open? It snowed three days ago. We've got two feet of snow. Why aren't they open and groomed? Well, it, it's a pretty easy answer. It's pretty basic. Mostly you get those questions uh, at the beginning of the season when people are really eager and want to get out, and, and you get you know, a couple of big snowfalls, and people you know, just want to get out and say, well, why aren't the trails open? At the beginning of the season, the answer is, is, is simple. If the ground isn't frozen, if the water isn't frozen, you can't do trails. With the weight of, of the grooming equipment and how heavy that is, clubs get into a whole lot of trouble if they try to get out early without things being frozen. So that's one factor. The other factor is in areas where there's a whole lot of private property, you, you have a lot of farmers for instance, who have not yet given permission for the trail on their land to be open 
because maybe they don't have their crops off, maybe the livestock, the livestock aren't away yet for the winter, whatever it is. And so until those private operators, landowners, give the permission, you can't open the trail. So often you can, you can have, if you're a club, you may have like a section of, say, abandoned rail line uh, for 20 kilometers, you know, flat, high, dry, and that section actually could be open. The problem is that for the club to get to that section with a big piece of grooming equipment, they've got to cross three bogs, two swamps, and two landowners who aren't, who aren't giving them permission yet to open the trail. So they can't, they can't even, even the trails that could be open, they can't do it quickly. In season, like so the trails have been, let's say assume the trails have been open now for, for several weeks, everything's going fine, and you get a major storm. And you got, you know, 12, 20 inches, 24 inches of snow virtually overnight. The problem with that is that the grooming equipment can't get through. It's too heavy for, for a groomer to go out and pack, the, and pack the trail properly right away. Clubs will get out as fast as they can, usually with just the groomer, without the drag, to break through the snow and pack it down and then bring the drag out to do it. But that takes a couple of days remembering that these are volunteers who also have a life of their own and a job of their own and a family of their own. And so, you know, they're, they're doing this for the love of the sport and, and for you, the rider, on their own time. So give them a break. For sure, for sure. Backside of, backside of that, Craig, is the end of the season. Now, I don't know about you, but I love end of the season riding, long days. Trails have been groomed for two months now. Lakes are super hard and froze. Swamps are good. Do you find the temperatures, odd, the temperatures are warmer? Season, that the trails can be fairly vacant? Yeah, it's amazing to me. Like the best time to ride virtually anywhere is March, for all the reasons you just said, plus, plus it's warmer. And the, if, if the winter's been any good at all, the trail base is fantastic in March and virtually, virtually indestructible unless you get an amazing melt. And, and you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with, I think, two factors. One, people are really eager to get started early, and so they get out and, and, you know, and ride through the end of January and February, and by the time they're getting into March, may, maybe they're, you know, they're a little bit kind of satiated with the riding and, and are also maybe running out of money, um, and so you know, they're, they're not just as, as eager. But if it were me, and I, had, and I had to do it, I had to make this choice, I'd sit out January and ride March. There's an interesting parallel there. You know, I know I know you're involved in you know, riding on the water in the summer as well. And I see it up north where, you know, June, July, everybody's out in their boats. Halfway through August, the water's warm. It's nice days, and and they're parked. Same yep. with sleds. People are so eager to get those first rides in, and once they've got the ride in, the hours, the budget is you know that they've set aside is done. They sit, which to me is is is, is just surprising because uh, given some of the amazing conditions I've had up north in the end of February right through March. Now let me just let me just clarify what you just said, Phil, because you said I ride on the water in the summer. I just want to clarify this: it's not on a snowmobile. <laughs> so it's on it's on a Sea-Doo personal watercraft. <laughs> and, and, and 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 you're you're absolutely right. And actually, the parallel month to me is September to May to, to March, like March and September. September for the last five years has been a really good weather month. Um, and, and you know, as soon as you pass Labor Day. The waterways are empty, and it, and it's. I think the other thing that happens in March too, um, which is also a, a factor. Sometimes you get Easter at the late part of March, 
and you always have, at least in Ontario and Quebec, spring break. So you have a, a week in there in March where you know your kids are going to be off school and, and the tendency is to, you know, to be with the family and, and, and maybe to head south. And so that becomes the focus of March, whereas in February you're focused strictly on winter. If, um, if, I'm, if I may throw one more question at you, uh, backing up a bit when you talked about the uh, trail network, is I don't know of any other recreation where there's so many volunteers. It, it, again, the, the boating analogy, in the summer, boaters don't get out there and mark the channels and dredge the channels. They just unload their boat I know, off the lift and they go snowbillers. This, this is an incredible workforce. If you could just describe that, that you know, what, no other sport has this. No, that's true, and and it's and I don't think it's that anybody could duplicate it. Um, it it's a really it's a, it's a bit it's a bit of a miracle. I, like I don't understand when I look at at the amount of work that the volunteers do, I don't understand why they continue to do it. Um, when, when you look at, at people in in your area in southwestern Ontario, Phil, where every sign and every stake has to be put up at the beginning of the season because at the end of the season it has to be taken down again because it's farm country. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge amount of work. There are, there are lots of other places in the province, you know, in northern Ontario, for instance, where, you know, it's old logging roads and everything else, and, and the signs stay up all, all year round. Maybe, maybe it get damaged a little bit by bears or hunters or whatever, but, you know, that workload isn't, isn't there as much. And then the, the whole preparation for the trails, you know, I often think during the summer, as, as I'm sitting in my cottage uh, moaning because I, I can't go out for a sea ride because there's a major storm blowing through in the summer, and I'm sitting there and I think to myself, okay, so I can't go out for a sea ride today, but this storm is creating a whole pile of work for snowmobile volunteers because it's knocking down trees, it's knocking down branches, it's flooding in the backcountry, and you know, all of those trails that, that were totally open and, and operable when the snow melted may now be blocked or, or damaged by what happens with weather in the summer and in the fall. And often, you know, the volunteers, the, the first time they really know what they're in for is, is the first time that they can get out, usually on an ATV, to go out and, and look at the trails and, and to see whether the trail is even really still there. And, and that's got to be, to me, a really discouraging thing because often you go out and the trail that you work so hard on to get perfect for last winter is back to square one. I mean, Mother Nature has come along and basically obliterated it. So you've got to get a crew of volunteers to go back in there with chainsaws and brush cutters and axes and take down all the trees. I mean, you'd think at some point that you'd run out of trees that could fall down. But it's a huge job, and, and, and snowmobilers certainly don't understand that because all, all they see is they unload the, the sled from the trailer at, at the trailhead and get on the trail, and the trail's wide open and groomed, and they go for a ride. Yep, it seems simple, but it's a huge job. Ride yeah. Absolutely true. Um, okay, Craig, um, uh, let's, let's uh, ask some, some questions here. Um, um, if, if you had to recommend a, 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 a tour um, to somebody, say, in southern Ontario or from the United States, for that matter, um, is there one tour that, that you that really you you would you really like?
like and have been on a couple times and would, would recommend to, to others? That, that's a real tough one because I've been to so many places and there are so many great destinations. Um, one, one of the things that we're really lucky about uh, in central Canada, and central Canada I mean Ontario and Quebec together, is that there are so many options. So it, it, part of the answer to that question depends on where you're coming from. So for instance, if you're coming from Michigan into Canada, um, if you cross at Windsor or Sarnia, um, your closest place, and some fantastic riding, is the Grey Bruce region, which, which is just like you know Owen Sound, like you know, north of London, Ontario. There's some fantastic riding in there, uh, and it's close and it's close to Michigan. Or if you go, you know, the other way and go north into the north end of Michigan and across at the Sioux, there's also some great riding in the Algoma region of Ontario. Quebec, similar thing. You know, if you're coming from New York or, or you're coming from the New England states, there, there's some great riding opportunities in Chaudière Appalachia, which is right across the border from Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and so, so that's the first thing, right? depending on how far you want to go. Um, if, if your objective is to just have you know, kind of the ultimate riding experience, regardless of how far away it is, you know, within, within limits, let's, let's say within a, a long day's trailer ride from home. So, you know, you might be trailering for 10 to 14 hours for the sake of argument, which is, you know, a, a full day and you probably don't want to go any further than that. Um, then, uh, you know, one would be uh, the whole northern corridor in Ontario, uh, Cochrane to Hearst. Um, they've, they've now put into place five loops that, that, that connect to the main top trail A, which runs from Cochrane to Hearst. So you don't just have to go out and back again. You can ride, ride all of these loops, and there's four or five days of just excellent riding. It, it's, it's undoubtedly the best riding in Ontario, the most consistent riding in Ontario, the longest season in Ontario. It's, it's OFSC District 15, and they really know how to put it all together. Uh, I, you know, I've been up there a number of times, and, and, and it's the place that I always go at the end of the season when you know things are shutting down other places because because things are thawing. End of March, into April, you'll find me up in the northern corridor riding out of Cochrane, and you know they just they really have it nailed. Um, another place w which you know has a, has a similar kind of experience but but different is you know riding uh, to Riviere du Loup in Quebec and riding the Gas Bay. Uh, fantastic loop around the Gas Bay. You need you need to, uh, at least a week to do it, plus trailering time. So there and so there are a couple of things like that that are really iconic and and are you know should be on your bucket list to, to say we've done that. But if you don't have the time, and lots of people don't, I mean uh, there's lots of people that can't get any more than a week off in the winter, and so you sure don't want to spend if you got a week off, you know, so 10 days, like two, a weekend, a week, and then another weekend, so a total of maybe nine or 10 days, you don't want to spend two or three of those days trailering if you can avoid it. And you can because there's lots of great places to ride where, where maybe you don't have to trailer anywhere near as long. One of the things that, that I've been noticing recently, and, and readers of Snowboard Canada magazine will, will notice this in, in some of my articles, I used to do primarily week, even up to 10-day tours, um, and 
you know, that, because that, that seemed to be what, what people were the most interested in at that point. In the last three or four years, I still do that. I still do the, you know, the week-long tours, but at least half of what I'm writing about is also places where you can go when you only have a weekend or a long weekend. So let's say you, you, know, you, can, take, you can leave Thursday night, you can ride Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and come back Sunday night. So it has to be close enough that, that you can trailer for four or five hours tops and probably stay at the same destination and ride three great day rides out of that. So you know, you know, one good example of that is Sudbury, Ontario. Sudbury has three great loops, all really good day rides, and you, you can drive to Sudbury, stay where I stay, which is the Moonlight Inn and Suites, right on the trail, and, and ride three days and have a great experience and, and then come home. And there's several places like that around Ontario. Another one is Owen Sound, you know, where I just talked about the Great Bruce, and there, there's three really good loops out of that. Um, another one is, is the Bancroft area, where, where you, can, you can put in a, and ride three good loops. So if you've only got a long weekend, they're great places to ride. The other advantage of that, of, of going and staying in one place, is that if, if you go and you have a couple of families that want to go, you can take your family and stay at a hotel that, you know, that has a pool and a hot tub and stuff like that, so, and it is in a town that's big enough that there's something else to do if you want to do something else. And if everybody doesn't want to ride every day, or maybe the, maybe the kids only want to ride half a day, so you take them out for half a day and bring them back, and then, then those that want to go on and do some more riding go out while the, you know, the kids go to a movie or, or play in the, in the pool in the hotel with, with a couple of the adults who, who stay behind. So, so you need to come up with, with more options for what riders can do, simply because people are really pressed for time these days. Uh, you know, when you look at how much people work, how many hours they work in a week, uh, how pressed they are for family time, um, the, the time that you have on the snow is really valuable, and you don't want to waste any of it. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned your, your articles at Snowboard Canada Magazine. Um, I'm sure people are wondering your your past uh, your past tours. Where can they find all these uh, these archived uh, tours? Well, I uh, started a, a website uh, a couple of years ago, which strangely enough is IntrepidSnowmobiler.com, um, and most of, of my stuff is on there. I've got uh, archived tours from all of the various provinces. I've got. Uh, my favorite lodgings, list of, of, of places that I've stayed that, that I really enjoyed staying at. It's not a list of every place I've stayed at. It, it's just a list of the places that I most enjoyed. Um, and I've got separate from the articles uh, some itineraries of select places where you can just download the itinerary and go and ride it. In addition to that, there's uh, you know product reviews and, and touring tips uh, advice for how to how to plan your tour and put together and, when it, and what, what to take with you. So everything that I've that I've learned over all the years and everything that I've put into Snowgore magazine over the years and into my columns and into the radio show and on the Snowbiller television for all that matter um, is on on my website intrepidsnowbiller.com. And you you had a book a couple years ago. Uh, is that still available? Um, it's sold out. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm happy to say. Time for version um, two, then. Well, we're working on that. Okay. Um, yeah, I had a lot of people ask me about that, and, and you know, that was really just just before kind of the whole social media thing took off, 
and, and, I, and I put a book together of, of tours right across Canada called Canada's Best Snowmobiling, um, and it, it really went well, and it was a great experience, you know, putting something together and publishing it and then seeing how it all came together. Um, and so those, those tours and everything I've done since is on my website. So I'm not envisioning a, a, a version two of the book uh, because it's online. Oh, so is it like an, an e-book type format? Like, no, that you, that no. People can read it or? No, it, it's just everything that, that was in the book, uh, you know, which was tour articles and, 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 and you know, places where, where you can go and ride is on the website in, in, in a similar format. So you can, you know, Perfect. download the files and, and, and read them and use them. Perfect. Phil? One last question. Top, I know you, you, you are always out to testing products. If you had to, what would be your top three must-have accessories on your sled or options? Well, I would like, I, I'd like, uh, I, I would like uh, Craig to actually name all the uh, uh, particular things that he has in those saddlebags and uh, on, a, on, a, on a tour with him. <laughs> I, warned, I, warned you, I warned you about that, Craig. You have got another hour? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The, the real, yeah, like, like Phil says, the real necessities uh, that people should have for like a four-day, five-day tour. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I went through a real traumatic experience several years ago. I guess it was 2003 when the Skidoo introduced the Rev platform because up until that point, there was all kinds of room under the hood of the sled. And I had every nook and cranny packed with stuff that, in most, most, most cases, I never used, but it was all emergency stuff. And then the Rev platform came along, and all of a sudden, all the room disappeared. And so I had to do two things. One of the things was I eliminated a whole pile of stuff that I had simply never used. Um, and the second was that I found new places to put stuff that, that, that I did need to carry. The first, the first thing that happened, too, is that, you know, speaking to what Phil said a couple of minutes ago about the sleds being much more technically advanced than they used to be, um, it, it really is almost useless now to carry a whole toolkit with you because there's, there's not a lot of stuff you can do in a sled on the trail these days. Um, you know, there's, it, it's really tight in, under the engine, in the engine compartment to get anything done. And the sleds are so reliable. You know, in the last I can't even remember the last time that I had a breakdown with a sled. I mean, I mean, it's at least 10 years ago, and and I do, you know, 12 or 15,000 kilometers a season, and you know, so which is you know more than most people do in three or four years, and and I, and I just never have breakdowns. Um, I mean, even belts, you know, last that long. Spark plugs last that long. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, so really, uh, in terms of of that kind of stuff, I don't carry very much. I do carry. Uh, you know, some basic supplies, you know, like, like you know, like granola bars and, and, and fire starter and, and uh, you know, space blanket and a few things like that in, in case I ever, for some reason or other, get stranded somewhere or, you know, heaven forbid someone gets injured and we've, we've got to kind of try to keep them warm while, we, while they arrange a rescue. The, the biggest and most important thing I carry with me for all of that is a satellite phone. Um, you know, I ride lots of places where cell service isn't available. Um, I've, I've had personal tracking units, and there's a couple of different makes available. Um, but the satellite phone is, is just fantastic. I mean, I mean, they're smaller than they used to be. They're, they're a whole lot cheaper than they used to be, and you can contact anybody from anywhere. So, and you know, and they have a, you know the GPS coordinates in them, so people know where you are. Um, and once again, I mean, it's, I don't know. This is knock on wood. Since I got the satellite phone, I've never had an emergency where I've had to use it. 
Um, but you know, it, it's always good to be prepared, and I, and I, and I always have a, you know a tow strap or a tow rope or something like that, because the, there are other other sleds, other brands that break down, and so I you know I've, I've got to deal with that. I, okay, I Phil. Phil, I know you have to uh, get going, and we're going to be talking to you again uh, very soon. Yeah, uh, I, have got to, I have to get out the broom and sweep off that quarter inch of snow that just closed my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> you got anything else to add, Phil? No, I, I, it's, been, it's been a real, real pleasure talking with you, Craig. And uh, maybe one of these days we actually will ride together. I think that's happening in a few weeks. I think it is. I think that January 4th is our first ever ride together. Gord can warn you, it's not a pretty sight watching me ride. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've heard. So, oh, um, also, you, you mentioned um, that um, you, you don't bring in guests uh, along your rides. Who do you usually ride with? Like, are, are they local People or uh... no, not necessarily local, but they're they're a group of of, of guys uh, that I draw from who are all avid riders, um, are all experienced trail riders, um, who first and foremost understand what it is we're trying to do. Um, you know, the, the the mission is to end up with a good Snowgore Canada story that readers are going to be able to use. And so, you know, that's the primary mission. So everybody's focused on that. Um, they understand, uh, you know, why we ride, how we ride, and where we ride. And, and when we stop for photos, they understand what they need to do in order to, to make the photo thing work quick and, and, and so we can get on with the ride. Um, and they're, they all have various skills, some social media, some, some tech skills, and some, you know, performance skills in terms of, you know, minor repairs on the trail and all that. And, and the other big thing is that they're all just, you know, really good guys who are available. A, a, a number of them are uh, guys who work for, you know, Bell or Hydro or, or some, something like that, where they, they work, you know, 12-hour shifts and then have like a whack of time off. And so, you know, they can plan their time around the tours. Um, and they're guys that I make the whole experience work for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, perfect. Um so you've got your, your schedule all planned out. Do you want to give us a little hint of uh, where you might be going this year? Yeah, I'm starting uh, between Christmas and New Year's at uh, Le Cabanon, or Berge Le Cabanon, in Lenaudière, Quebec. Uh, following that, by two days, we go up to Abitibi to Miskaming, Quebec, for uh, what, what is really our first kind of break-in ride on, on some of the new sleds from Snowgore Canada magazine. And then uh, following that, I'm doing... Uh, in this order, uh, the Bancroft area, I mentioned that earlier in the call, uh, the Grey Bruce area out of Owen Sound. Uh, then we're riding uh, Sudbury over to, uh, through Algoma, a new loop that they put together there that goes over to St. Joe's Island and around Elliott Lake. And then uh, following that, I'm doing uh, Cote Nord, Quebec, which is the north shore of the St. Lawrence, uh, up towards Sedio. And then uh, we're doing a tour in the North Bay Mattawa area, and then I go back to Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean for a, a tour there, um, and then uh, and that's it for my magazine rides. And then I've got uh, another ride after that uh, back up to the Northern Corridor, Cochrane and Hearst, and that takes me, you know, through to the end of March. I have uh, a couple of days in between each tour to, to uh, change underwear and and uh, take care of. Uh, some servicing. Usually, I get my sled serviced every couple of thousand kilometers, just uh, because I'm doing high mileage and I want to make sure that it's working properly. And that's probably one of the reasons why I haven't had any breakdowns. Right. 
Um, so I've got a lot of time for that, and, and uh, but it's a busy winter. So no Western trips this year? No. Um, at, at this point, I haven't got anything planned for, for the West. I, I know that uh, Phil and uh, someone else from the magazine are going out uh, to Alberta for the World Snow Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going out to that. Are you, are you going? Okay, yeah. so you're going out for the World Snow Day yeah, yeah, in, in the middle of February. It'll be my second time there, and that's, uh, that's going to be a blast. It is going to be a blast. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and, and because you guys were already covering the Western Canada story, I didn't need to do that this year. Yeah, yeah. And the U.S., any any opportunities in the, in the United States to, to go for a tour? I'll tell you, um, since uh, I started with Snowgoer Canada magazine, the premise has, has always been uh, that this is a Canadian magazine about snowmobiling in Canada, and so those, that's where I ride, um, at least for the magazine. Occasionally you'll see something that, that comes in for, you know, where Snowbiller Television has, has gone to Sweden or something, and, and, and they'll do an article about that trip. Um, so it's kind of an exotic location. But generally, uh, there's a whole pile of American-based snowbilling magazines, which all do a great job and write about riding in the United States. So I, I see Snowboard Canada's job as, as riding, uh, writing about and promoting riding in Canada. Okay, that's uh, that's that's great. Um, so let's get down to your machinery. Um, I've I've been with you at uh, several shows and uh, kind of overheard some of your conversations. And there's always, you know, a few people that come up to you and ask you why skidoo. So here's your opportunity to uh, to, to uh, tell everybody uh, why you enjoy riding skidoo because uh, um, you've had some good success with them and and you've been a partner with them for several years. A lot of years. And, and actually, it, it started as basic as this, and I think that this is the same with, with a lot of snowmobilers. Bought brand, a cottage. Brand loyalty. <laughs> I bought a cottage. The local dealer was a Skidoo dealer. So, so the place that I went to look first, first when I went to buy a snowmobile, my first snowmobile was a Skidoo dealer because he was close and handy to the cottage and I could get everything serviced. It, you know, it, was, it wasn't because, you know, Skidoo was the best machine on the market or anything else. It was simply that proximity. And I think a lot of people buy on that basis, at least initially. And then as, as things evolved and, and it became, you know, more of a business for me as well as pleasure, um, I started to, to, to develop a sense of, you know, what sled seemed to work best for me and my riding style. And overall, that, is, that has been... A Skidoo snowmobile, but which isn't to say that other brands aren't good or you know that, that they don't make fine products. It, it's just for me now, particularly, it, it's a question of of comfort and convenience. Skidoo has 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 a great ride, fantastic rear suspension. This year they they've added the Raz 2 in the front, which 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 make, makes the front end really strong. Uh, the 900 Ace engine is the best engine I've ever ridden on the snow, and Add to that that all of my touring gear, you know, the saddlebags and everything I carry with me, is, and all the accessories that I add are all fitted for a Skidoo snowmobile. So, you know, for me to move to a different brand, I have to change all of that stuff. And, 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 and with, with the, the accessories and the bags and everything that I've got, I know where everything is. I know where it fits. I know it's going to stay on the sled for, you know, a 400-kilometer day and not fall off. So, so it's all of that. Plus, as I said earlier in the conversation, I haven't had a breakdown for years. I mean, like it just runs and runs and runs. 
so and and you know and all the guys that I ride with ride Skidoo snowmobiles, and and that's not that's not me saying you know you have to ride a Skidoo snowmobile. It's them deciding that 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 was the best choice for the kind of riding we're doing for the long distance touring. And many of them have come from other brands. I mean, I've got a guy that's been riding Arctic Cat for the last couple of years, and and, and he just switched to Skidoo this year uh, for this coming winter because he saw how much we all enjoyed riding our Skidoos. So, you know, everybody has their preference. Um, but mine is for Skidoo, and I don't make any apologies for that. If if I'm going to ride as many kilometers a year as I do, I need to do it in comfort on a sled that's not going to do damage to, 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 my, to me or my body. Um, so that, it is what it is. Yeah, it's just I, I think because you're a, you're a high-profile uh, snowmobiler and you're you're in the magazine and snowmobile you know, television so much, I guess yep. people just uh, they see it and they say, you know, why why Skidoo, why Skidoo? So now you now you know. So it, it's it's not surprising. Skidoo makes a, a fantastic snowmobile. Well, and, and, and the other thing, Gord, too, is that I'm not a performance or tech writer. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like it's not like you and, and Phil when you go to snowshoot and, and you ride all of the, the, the brands and and you know in in the reports that you write for the magazine. You need to to write about you know the best and the worst and the, you know what everybody's done on all of the different brands, and and you need to do that throughout the year because that's the kind of writing you do for the magazine. I don't write about sleds, you know I write about tours, so that's the difference between our approaches. Perfect. Okay, uh, your machinery's taking place. Uh, um, what about clothing? What uh, what do you like for clothing? You do a lot of uh, you know you're in you're in every type of temperature and. Uh, and conditions. Uh, what do you like for clothing? Layers. Layers. Absolute layers. You want to describe um, what kind of layers you wear? Well, I, I, I wear merino wool. Um, it's it, it, absolutely the best I've, I've found. I, I, I tend to be fairly hot in terms of metabolism, um, and so you know, but my body puts out a lot of heat. Um, so I, I need to be in a situation where I can cool down quickly if I need to, and, and I'll obviously I'll have to warm up quickly if I need to. Merino wool is fantastic because even if it gets a little damp from perspiration, it's still warm. It's still warm, and it dries real quickly. Um, and the other thing about it is, and I don't know what what it is about merino wool, but I mean it's the property of merino wool. It doesn't hold any odors. So you know you can you can ride for you know an entire tour, and it smells as good as it did at the beginning. I mean I mean I I have to have a shower every day, but the merino wool keeps on smelling fine. You know. Yes, for sure. So, I, so I, I, I know a product uh, that I use uh, for my marathons, and uh, it's absolutely true. I can I can wear it several times, and uh, it does not stink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've incorporated that into my uh, snowmobiling now. And uh, yeah, so I so I have several layers of merino wool that you know a base layer and a mid layer and, and a heavier layer that that I either put on or not, depending on how cold the day it's going to be. Um, and then I always wear a tech vest, um, and I wear the tech vest. You know, primarily as, as a safety device. Uh, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it also provides a, a good amount of, of warmth for your torso. And I have one of the uh, prototype electric tech vests. So actually, my tech vest is heated if I need it. Um, I, I rarely use it. Like first thing in the morning, if it's 35 below, I might put it on. Or at the end of the day, if it's really cold, you know, sometimes if you've been riding a long day, you just start to get that chill on. And I'll put it on, and it and it's, it works just like an electric blanket. It's fantastic. Really, that sounds yeah. nice. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and it's nice to have as a backup, even you know, even if you don't use it. Um, I wear Baffin snowmobile boots, um, and I just found them to be 
the only boots that, I, that I've ever worn where my feet have never got cold, and, and, uh, and they're like rated down to a, like you know minus 140 Fahrenheit or some some ridiculous number that no, you, I mean you, you'd, you'd be dead, but your feet would be warm, you know. Um, and I, then I, you know for, for a suit, uh, for the last number of years I've been wearing FXR, um, good Canadian-made suit, um, and I wear the Adrenaline suit, which is their top of the line. Um, typically take out the, the liner uh, from the jacket and, and make up for that weight with the merino wool because I find the, the, the liner in the jacket is, is, is often too heavy and so that's why I wear it just as a shell and it's got zippers and vents and I can open and close things as I need to. So that works real well. And uh, I wear a, a Skidoo BV2S helmet which uh, you know, people often ask me because I wear glasses um, and so lots of people who wear glasses ask me if I have trouble with fogging and frosting up and, and the BV2S helmet is absolutely the best one I've had for avoiding frosting and fogging. It, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing helmet because it creates a sealed atmosphere inside the helmet and, and once you get the temperature balance set, you can ride all day and never fog up. So, and those are all things that are really important because what I don't want to have happen when I'm on a, on a tour is to have, to, to be distracted by some stupid thing with the gear that, that, that's uncomfortable or, or you, know, that, you know, so you're fogged up or you're frosted or you're cold or, or something's uncomfortable because then that distracts me from being able to experience the ride and write the proper story for the rider. Um, you know, the, the rider who's reading the story didn't have that problem. So, you know, they don't care if, I, if I'm fogged up or frosted, so, so I don't want to be. So, right. you know, so I eliminate all of those variables, and I, you know, which is also going back to the sled. But one of the reasons why I, I ride a Skidoo Snowmobile, because I know I can count on it, it's reliable, and I don't have to worry about it, and I can concentrate on the story. Right. Well, that's fantastic. It's uh, great, great info. Um, you mentioned your, uh, your, your radio commercials uh, that uh, are now playing. Um, where, uh, where can people uh, listen to them? Uh, are, are they available at most uh, markets in, in Ontario, or do they also in, in Canada? Or? Yeah, there, there's uh, 65 stations in Ontario, um, you know, most, most major markets, um, not every station in every market. Um, and, they, and they play them, depending on the station, a, a couple of times a day, and so it's just a question of, of, of whether you're there at the time. Because they're like, you know, 40-second tips, um, so so there's you know there's something that they fit into the program really easy. But but the same token, if you haven't tuned in for that particular 30 or 40 seconds, then you're going to miss it. Um, so I uh, and and then there's like about 60 stations in other parts of Canada that are, that are also run them. Right. And and the whole part of that is just to take little tidbits of experiences that I've, that I've had and advice that I have and tips that I had and, and reduce it to a really short. Uh, radio spot that that you know can be on there and someone can hear it really quick, and also to I try to make them you know positive and upbeat because often a lot of the people that are going to be hearing them on on the radio aren't snowmobilers and so I want them to not necessarily go snowmobiling but I want them to to perceive snowmobiling in a positive way by by hearing something positive about snowmobiling on the airwaves because usually what they hear is oh another snowmobiler died this week. And that's bad for all of us. Yeah, and uh, we want to thank you because uh, you made those uh, those uh, messages available to me, and I'll be playing all those uh, in uh, my podcast uh, uh, every every show, so you can uh, hear those uh, messages uh, before every uh, podcast. So 
thank you very much for that, and because uh, it's some great, there's some great info. I've, I've listened to uh, several of them, and there's and there's some really good information on it. Well, thanks for that, Gordon. It was, and thanks for the opportunity doing that. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Craig, I we really appreciate uh, your time today, and uh, you know, I'm sure a lot, you answered a lot of questions that uh, people have uh, have been wondering about, and. Uh, uh, you know, you're very, you're very gracious at the snowmobile shows, and you're you're talking to everybody. Uh, you know, it seems all the, the whole day. So uh, you you must enjoy that. You must enjoy talking about <laughs> snowmobiling at the snow. I do, and I enjoy meeting the people that are out riding the trails, and you know, and the people who read the articles. You know, because because they come to me and 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 they they give me you know positive feedback and negative feedback. You know, they say why 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 don't you do this or you know have you ever written about this or we didn't have that same experience, and that's important for me to know. Craig Nicholson, the intrepid snowmobiler, uh, really appreciate uh, your time today, and um, it was great talking to you. Intrepidsnowmobiler.com. Go to my website and, and find out everything you need to know about touring snowmobiling in Canada. And we're back. I want to thank uh, Craig Nicholson, the intrepid snowmobiler. Now, I did butcher the ending there a bit where he, can, he announces where he can be found. Now, it is intrepidsnowmobiler.com, and uh, Craig also has a Facebook page. Uh, the Intrepid Snowmobiler Facebook page, and you can uh, see his updates on there too. He posts uh, a lot of stuff uh, on there. Now, um, upcoming here is a uh, an interview that I did with uh, a company called Icebreaker, and they are a merino wool um, clothing company. And um, when uh, when Craig uh, mentioned on there that he uh, uses uh, merino wool for his uh, base layers, I thought it'd be a good uh, good opportunity to put this. Uh, uh, interview that I did with uh, uh, Mike Caswell from Icebreaker Merino, and uh, it's a very prominent uh, company in uh, in skiing and in marathon running and uh, cycling. It's uh, really premium stuff. Some really nice looking stuff too. Uh, men and women. Uh, the women would probably like this stuff because it uh, has uh, some very nice designs on it. Uh, so it's it's very attractive looking uh, clothing, and it's very effective. Um, so here is an interview that I did with Mike Caswell, and uh, you can uh, find uh, this apparel at uh, icebreaker.com on the internet, and uh, they have uh, uh, retail stores listed on there, and uh, um, I say that this is really good stuff, uh, uh, base layers, underwears, uh, um, socks, uh, hats, uh, just about everything they have uh, clothing-wise uh, you can stick underneath your uh, very nice uh, snowmobile suits. So I would encourage uh, people to, uh, to have a look and, uh, and uh, see, what, see what they think. So uh, here is an interview that I did with Mike Caswell from Icebreaker. It's Mike Caswell with Icebreaker Merino Clothing. I'm an account service representative in Ontario responsible for selling and servicing accounts uh, throughout Ontario. Okay, Mike, uh, can you tell us um, your, your company, Icebreaker, uh, where, where it's from and, um, and uh, the purpose of uh, the Merino Wool? Yeah, so Icebreaker Merino is from New Zealand, the southern Alps of New Zealand. Uh, they started about 20 years ago by a young man by the name of Jeremy Moon. Jeremy Moon is a native to New Zealand himself, and he discovered the products backpacking across the southern Alps with his girlfriend at the time, and a farmer handed him a prototype of merino wool and told him to touch this. And from there, he developed it into the largest merino wool company in the world today. So what is the process for your, uh, your materials, uh, the, the merino wool? And also, uh, what is the difference between merino wool and normal wool as we would know it? Yeah, so merino wool is different from traditional wool as in it comes from a different breed of sheep. So just like there's different breeds of dogs, German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, what have you, there's different breeds of sheep. 
uh, regular wool comes from lowland sheep who graze around the mountain all day and are pretty lazy. So that's why you get the coarse, thick wool. Whereas merino sheep are the southern, living in the southern Alps of New Zealand where the temperature can range from minus 30 in the winter to 30 above in the summertime. So through nature, they've developed a fiber that will not only keep them warm while it's cold, but also keep them cool when it's hot. Okay, so um, what, is, what is the benefits of merino wool? Yeah, so the main benefits of merino wool are the fact that it'll keep you warm, but it'll also keep you cool so you're not going to overheat. It does a great job of regulating your body temperature. It doesn't itch like traditional wool because of the fine nature of the fiber, and it doesn't stink. And um, what, is the, what is the basic uh, advantages of merino wool versus other uh, traditional uh, materials? Yeah, so if we were to compare uh, merino wool to traditional wool fibers, the main difference is uh, the feel of it. So a merino wool fiber compared to traditional wool is about half of the diameter, and it's about an inch to an inch and a half longer. So what happens with a traditional wool sweater is you get left with a lot of short ends that actually poke and irritate your skin, which is why people perceive wool as being itchy. Because we use Icebreaker New Zealand Merino wool, it's a lot finer fiber, so there's less of those short ends, and because it's so fine, it actually just flexes and bends on contact with skin. So a benefit of using Merino wool over traditional wool is you get all the warmth uh, benefits of it without adding any bulk and no itch. If we were to compare it to a synthetic fiber, be it nylon, polyester, uh, the main difference is the breathability as well as the no stink factor. So with a synthetic fiber, because it's made of plastic, moisture can only move through the holes that are created in the fabric. It can't move freely through the fiber. Whereas merino wool being a natural fiber, it can move through the holes in the fabric as well as through each tiny individual fiber that is in each top. So it does a better job of regulating your body temperature. It'll keep you cooler for longer before you start to overheat. And then it doesn't stink as well because it has tiny scales on the surface of the fabric. Uh, it eliminates the bacteria that causes odor. So it makes it difficult for that odor-causing bacteria to attach to the fiber and then grow. Whereas with a synthetic top, because it is smooth, it's plastic, the bacteria just latches onto it and then feeds off any salt and fat that you sweat out of your body. It, does, it does, actually doesn't dissipate uh, 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 synthetic fiber. It actually doesn't not dissipate the moisture from your body. As, as well as a merino wool. Yeah, so a difference there is that you're talking about wicking and breathability. So wicking is what synthetic, top do, synthetic tops do, and wicking is the act of moving liquid from one place to the other. So when you start to sweat, that's when synthetic tops kick in. They move that liquid away from your body. Merino wool will start by using moisture vapor. So before that hot air condenses and turns into sweat droplets, merino wool pulls that moisture away and it keeps your body nice and cool and comfortable for a lot longer. I've noticed um, when I run with uh, the Icebreaker product, in, in the wintertime especially, uh, frost will form on the outside of my, my outfit, but yet it doesn't feel uh, uh, damp or, or, or moist, the, the actual product. Is that the act of the, uh, dis displating the moisture? Exactly, yeah. So uh, merino wool can hold up to three times its weight and moisture in the piece without you feeling wet. So when you sweat into it, what happens is the moisture moves to the exterior of the garment where in the summer it'll evaporate and cool you down. But when it's a little bit colder, frost will start to form because there's moisture there. Um, but that's exactly what it's from. Yeah. Okay, one thing with, uh, with snow snowmobilers, um, they don't tend to dress appropriately. Um, they have um, very nice snowmobile suits, but they tend to uh, dress um, in um, synthetic or blue jeans or okay. fleece. 
or stuff like that. Problem is, uh, they 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 um, get a sweat, and then they're then they're basically done for the day kind yeah. of thing because they're, they're it's not doing the job. Yeah. What would the what would merino do versus versus those other fabrics? So the merino is. First and foremost, it's going to keep you warm. So with Icebreaker, it's developed as a layering system. So it's a system of layers that's designed to perform as one. So you would start with any of our base layer product, which is going to be next to your skin. So you want this stuff to be close to your skin so that the the hot air that is trapped in the air pockets has less room to travel. So it'll keep you nice and warm by having something close to your skin. Then you probably want to layer up to get extra warmth. But the beauty of merino wool is because it's a layering system, it's going to move freely from your skin, move that moisture through your first layer, through the mid layer, and then to your suit. So it's going to keep you nice and comfortable. It's going to hold that moisture so you're not going to get that cold chill running down your spine sitting on the snowmobile. So talk about some of the uh, the, 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 the base layering you do have. Um, you have some nice-looking shirts here, but also you have uh, uh, underwear and uh, base layering Yeah, so, so about 60% of our icebreaker business is done with our box product. Um, so anything that comes in a box then is labeled base layer. So we start out at uh, different weights. So a 150, 200, and 260. Those numbers stand for the grams per meter square. So it takes a square meter of fabric to make a top. And we'll either add or take away merino wool to, in, to take it from a 200 top to a 260 top for more warmth. Because there's more merino wool fibers in there, it's keeping you a lot warmer. So in our 200 weight, for example, our Oasis crew, our best-selling piece, we'll do it in nine different colors. We'll do it in different prints. We'll do it in different cuts for men and ladies. Ladies will get the V-neck and the, the sweetheart neck. We'll do it with the zip, with the hood. So there's a lot of options there based on personal preference. If you want something that you can unzip, if you want something to cover, give you some extra coverage on your head. Uh, and we'll do that same thing in the 260 weight, which is good for really cold conditions. So you could do like a 150 uh, layer and then a, a 260 layer um, type thing underneath the, the, the suit. Yeah, definitely. You could have that 150 as a nice lightweight layer next to skin, and then the 260 would fit right on top of it to give you that extra warmth. Okay, um, you're, you're very big in, in skiing, cross-country skiing and, yep. uh, and, and skiing. Um, they, they kind of, you know, I've kind of known about this product for, for years. Um, Whereabouts are you located? Where where can people find Icebreaker? I've, I've noticed recently that uh, you're distributing Cabela's. Yep. Uh, whereabouts? Uh, what other stores and uh, large chains? So our largest retailers that we work with um, nationwide, our largest account is actually Frizzani. So Sportcheck and some Atmospheres will carry our product. They have a small selection of it, and it's in a small selection of stores. But not nationwide, they're our largest account. In Ontario, at the independent level, we our biggest accounts are Sporting Life in Toronto, Collingwood, now Markville in Ottawa. We're in Bush Taka in Ottawa. Um, different regional centers around the province have have big accounts, so it really depends. You can find any of our retailers on our website under the dealer locator, and then it's just icebreaker.com. And um, if they can't find a store near them, can they order online? Definitely, yeah. If there's no store near you, um, you can order it on icebreaker.com, and we do free shipping. Okay, back on the line with me uh, now is uh, Phil Molto. Uh, uh, Phil, um, big news this year, 2014-2015 season. You are going to be the new host of Snowmobiler Television. Uh, you've been um, you've been with uh, the company for 15 plus years. Uh, um, how how are you uh, enjoying uh, your new role? 
Oh, I, I'm really, really, really pumped, really excited about this new role. You know, for people who've been involved in the show, watching it for years, they've seen me in the background, see me on camera, and uh, so now it's kind of like a kind of like a, a Formula One team. They're, they're they're putting me right in the driver's seat for this one, and uh, I'm really, really excited because it's it's just been so many years of seeing so many changes in the sport and in the way that the sport is brought to the brought to the readers and the viewers. It's changed so much, and to be put in the in the driver's seat is, is yeah, I'm really excited about it. Now, you, you've obviously seen a big change in uh, snowmobiling, snowmobile television. Um, you were there in the, the, the early years, uh, equipment, um, you know, destinations. Uh, um, how are things looking uh, in, in the, in the, now and in the future? Well, it, it's interesting going back and how hard it was to actually film snowmobiling. I remember even when I was in college back in the early 80s, just to get footage of a snowmobile meant a huge camera, a huge record deck with cables, a huge tripod, you know, a, a box of batteries and tapes. It was just incredibly cumbersome and incredibly difficult. You really couldn't go that far to film because you had to haul, haul so much stuff. You need a big utility sled or, you know, to, to do it. And now you shuttle 30 years later, and it's incredible now because I can go, out, you know, as I do, out to the mountains, to Yellowstone and up into uh, Revelstoke, and I basically put everything in my backpack. I have a full-up interview camera, tripod, a couple of GoPros, a wasp cam, you know, video goggles. It's all in one backpack, and I can ride into the mountains with that. Whereas years ago, you know, you had to help get the camera guy and his gear into a spot where they could actually film from. So, the, much like the snowmobile technology has changed, so has the camera gear that records it all. So it's made it made it much excuse, easier. And excuse a lot me, better. Phil. Excuse me, Phil. But I was the one that always used to ha haul that camera gear in. <laughs> so, well, we figured you were riding. It was so heavy You stuff. might as well have the gear with you. That was the whole idea there, Gord. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the reason why I was there half the time. I think is haul all this heavy beta beta equipment in, and it was uh, it was heavy stuff. So, yeah. So uh, carry on. Uh, so now, uh, now obviously things are a lot easier. Oh, and and I think it reflects in the way people want to see the sleds on 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 the on their screen as well. Because as you remember, years ago we would set up a beta cam in a corner. And the test riders would drive towards the camera. We'd turn the camera, aim the other way, and you can buy the, the can. And if it was a smooth enough trail, the camera person would put the camera on their shoulder and ride on the back of a sled and try and get footage. And that was, that was really all the footage we could get. And uh, now people want to see those suspension shots. They want to see the, the, the dash. They want to see the bumper. They want to see the front suspension. So when we're talking about a new sled, say, for instance, the new Axis, I can put the camera right on the, right on the frame right on the front bumper, right in the front suspension, right on the dash, right on the person's helmet, or I can use an extender pole like I've done this year and actually put the camera right underneath the front suspension or right in the actual suspension. And that's so when we're talking about that with test riders, we can actually show them exactly the component they're talking about on the sled. Perfect. So um, what, uh, what, what uh, is your job entitled uh, with now? I mean, you were, you were a cameraman, uh, you know, the past, uh, you know, 15 odd years. Now you're the new host of Snowbeer Television. Uh, what's uh, your job title going to be entitled now? Well, it, it's interesting as you're, as you're saying that question. I think back to the, to the various roles I've had. And one of the first ways I got into um, Snowbiller Television was I was actually the vintage contributor. And uh, I would be seen on there and I would go to all these vintage events and we would incorporate that into the show. But now in my role, I'm actually the, the host from beginning to end of the show. I'm the person who you see at the beginning of the show, tells you what to expect. You'll see me during the show, and you'll see me at the end of the show wrapping it up and also telling you what's coming up on the next week. So I'll be on the road as a um, contributor and host, 
and I'm also be doing writing and a lot of, you know, I'll be doing multifaceted or multiple hats, as they say, in today's working industries. Yeah, so you've been, uh, you've been doing this kind of a part-time, you know, you're, you're a huge enthusiast, snowmobile enthusiast, I know that, and anybody who has seen you and uh, talked to you at any events uh, know that uh, you're, uh, you're quite an enthusiast for, for snowmobiling. Um, it looks like now you're going to be uh, doing uh, this uh, full-time. Um, how, how did uh, that all come about? It's, um, it was a sort of a, a been on the back burner for a while. It's something we talked about off and on over the years. And this year, the, just the, um, it, the, the the timing was just right for the timing was right for the um, the company that produces the show. The timing was right for me. My uh, my children are older now. My wife and I, you know, we're both, you know, we're, we are at the age of 51. You start looking at what you'd like to do, and the opportunity was there. So it's one of those things where you just can't say no because you'll never go back to that moment and say I should have. So this is a, I'm gonna instead of an I should have moment. And uh, there's it, it, we just, when you're talking about the aspects of the sport that's one thing we, we really try on this show is to be to bring something for everybody we have uh, trail riding we go to the mountains and as you know I, I love to hang out at the racetracks both ice oval and snow cross there's so many so many aspects of the sport nowadays totally different sleds totally different riding techniques totally different riding areas so we try to bring all that to the screen and with today's equipment it, it, it makes that possible and there's just there's just so much stuff. Anybody who's passionate about sledding really has to love every aspect of it. If you're a trail rider, you still want to see, you know, outback riding. Outback riders like to hear about the snowcross guys. Snowcross people like to hear about other people. There's so many aspects to the sport that, that can be captured, and it's, it's great to go to all those events and experience them all. Even riding a groomer is fun for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> it doesn't take much to, uh, to entertain you and uh, have a good time, that's for sure. Um, so what do we uh, what do we got in uh, in store for uh, for 2014-2015 season? Well, we've got some you know we've got some really in-depth uh, reviews of the new sleds. Uh, we did a really bang-up job. Our test riders are, are absolutely excellent people to deal with. These aren't just people who are keen to ride. These are people who are keen to dissect a sled and with incredible background. We've got two engineers. You know, we've got a, a millwright on board. You know, a former you know. We've got racing history. We've got so much in-depth passion and knowledge on, on, our, on our test crew. So when they talk about a sled, they also have different opinions. They don't always agree, and quite often they do They actually disagree on sleds. So it really brings a, a credibility to it and a real and passion at the same time. So that, that really, really brings a lot to our show. We're not just dealing with one person's perspective on a sled. You're dealing with three and four people's perspective on a sled and with, with experience and credibility. So and also with that we've got all kinds of touring destinations, you know, just getting out on the snow and and having fun and, and meeting people in the sport from all all aspects. Yeah, that's perfect. Can you uh, do you know uh, what your schedule is is going to be roughly like uh, this year? Any uh, destinations uh, that you have planned? Well, it, it, it's it's funny because as a as a youngster, I'm, I was one of those ones you know had the pictures of uh you know the roughs on the wall and you know pictures of Yellowstone and pictures of, you know of, of Revelstoke and. And it's great to actually now to be able to do all those things. It's like a bucket list all in one winter for me. Um, I'll be in the new year. I'll be traveling up to Quebec, and then I got to fly out to Revelstoke. I have a bunch of uh, destinations within a couple weeks when I get back, and then I, then I got to fly out to uh, Alberta with you. Then I'm home. I got to go to a bunch of racing and as much trail riding as I can get in, and then back out to Yellowstone. So I'll, I'll be logging a lot of air miles this winter, but a lot of road miles as well. Yeah, I know you. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy doing that though. Uh, it's uh, um, it, it's a blast doing uh, doing all this stuff, and 
you know, to think that uh, you know we uh, we do it uh, as a as a as a passion, but also as a as a, a fun job. I like to call well, it. Well, and, and you're absolutely right on the fun part. People think like, what? Will ask, what's your favorite sled? What's your favorite trail? What do you like doing the best? What would you like most about sledding? And ironically, one of the one of my favorite things about the sport is when I shut off the engine, whether it be on a lake or on a nice you know a nice uh, scenic you know trail area, and just kicking back and relaxing and just talking with people or you pull into a place at lunch and you'll see you know tables with families or groups of people i love just doing the rounds and asking people you know, what do you ride where you're from how long you were ridden the social aspect when you shut off the engine to me is huge because you, know, you know life can be stressful and tough and it's just great on a saturday or sunday afternoon you're out there and you're seeing people just just smiling and enjoying getting out in the winter on their snowmobiles it's you know it's just something that's always been a part of the sport the smiles on a sunday or a saturday afternoon so tell me, do you uh, do you ever get uh, you know this new role? Isn't it kind of a little bit stressful? Uh, I mean, we we haven't had uh, a, a great uh, snowfall yet. Uh, we're in uh, December now. Um, is there a little bit of stress now? Uh, you want to get out and uh, do some taping? Absolutely. I, I, I like like all sledders right now who are in areas that are, are, are waiting for the for the snow to fall. Yeah, we all get anxious. Anxious. We get a little edgy because we just need to get that first ride in that first, you know, six hours or four hours just to clean out the fuel tanks and just limber up and, you know, just to get the, the suit on and everything and get out riding again. We, we get really edgy, a lot of anticipation just to get out there for that first ride. And, it, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're different than other sports. If you're a boater, you can go out on May 24th even if it's cold. Well, with snowmobiling, we need snow. Boaters, the, water's, the water doesn't disappear and suddenly show up one afternoon. But for snowbills, it's tough waiting for that first day when the green the green light comes on and the lakes are frozen, the trails are marked, you know they're open, they're groomed, and we can finally ride. So we don't know if that's going to be December first or January first some years, and that that middle ground makes it pretty edgy. Yeah, how are you making out with uh, filming so far this year? Great, we've actually been on the road a lot. I've, I've actually been out to a lot of vintage and uh, summer events, a lot of indoor shows, and you know meeting people, gone for some tours, you know talked to a lot of racers. So. You know, anybody who's involved in snowmobiling knows how much work goes in before the snow even falls. And there's also a lot of year-round planning and year-round events. I mean, there's summer events like grass drags, vintage swap meets and stuff. I love going to them. Again, it's the social aspect. It's, it's just, it's just year-round fun. Fantastic. So where can we uh, find uh, Snowbird tele Television? Have you got, a, a, I guess, a Facebook page uh, you're going to be posting uh, where your uh, Snowbird Television can be seen? I, I am very active. In, in the social media, especially on our Facebook page, I, you know, people who followed us last winter will see when I'm out riding. I have the iPhone out all during the day, and you always get a couple pictures of what we're doing, where we're riding. If we're uh, at the racetrack or in the mountains of BC, you know, up trail riding, or if I'm out with the groomers, I'm uploading pictures all the time to uh, our Facebook page, uh, uh, you know, Snowbuilder TV on Facebook. Very active, and I'm actually uh, you can follow me on Twitter too. I'm uh, Philip Malto on Twitter, and I, I tweet out pictures as well during the day, so it'll go right to your phone. And the show, I'm sure, with uh, all the different uh, cable companies and uh, uh, what have you across Canada, um, it, it'll be Snowbill Television will be available on uh, on different uh, different channels in you know depending on their their cable supplier, and, and I guess uh, they can find all that out on on uh, the Facebook page too. It's it's there on the Facebook page. We actually have a promo on there. And at the end of the promo, it lists all the uh, stations where it's airing. And one, one benefit of that is that it gives people multiple opportunities to find it. Perfect. And uh, for our listeners um, uh, in, in Canada, um, 
Have you got a, a, any kind of events that you know of right now where people might be able to uh, connect with uh, you? Any rides, uh, events that you're going to where uh, people can maybe uh, connect with you and, uh, and you know, have a chat? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of people know I'm, I'm, I'm centered in here in Ontario, so I'm in Ontario a fair bit of the winter. But again, on, the, uh, on our Facebook page, I usually let people know where I'm going to be. So if they're in the area, they can keep an, you know, keep an eye out for me, or if they you know, feel the need to buy me a cup of coffee, you know, feel free. I'll always accept a free cup of coffee. <laughs> um, I w of course, I, I will be out in Whitecourt, Alberta. I'll be out in Revelstoke in uh, the beginning of, in middle of January. At the very beginning of January, I'll be up in uh, Royal Naranda, Abitibi area of Quebec, uh, back out to Yellowstone at the end of the winter. And um, yeah, I'm going to be just, just Keep an eye on our Facebook page, and you know, I always let people know where I'm going to be, whether it's on the track, the trail, or off in the powder. I'll be, you know, I'll let people know where I'm going to be. I always love to say hi to people. Yeah, that uh, the White Court, uh, it's the World Snowmobile Invasion uh, um, this year. It's called, uh, and that is in February 10th. Uh, yeah. It begins and goes yep. through to uh, the 16th, I believe. Uh, um, but we, we want to get the uh, the uh, directors of uh, of that event because that's going to be an amazing event in uh, in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, this year, and uh, I'll be out there with you, and uh, I, you know, I guarantee you, uh, it's going to be a great time. I was out there a couple years ago, and uh, that is one heck of a f festival. So hopefully, people will come up and uh, and talk to us there, and uh, see us, and uh, and uh, sit down, and uh, we'll ha we'll definitely have that coffee, um, and we'll be out at, at the events at nighttime too. So, um, well, the the, tr the trick is if it's, if we're in a crowded building like that, is to spot you first because I'm not the tallest person ever in the crowd. So they have to find <laughs> you, and then they'll find me. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Look for look for us. Uh, we'll have our uh, snowgoer STV gear out there, and uh, yeah, definitely come out and, and, and see us and uh, join us in the ride too. We're going to be riding out there too on on the trails, and uh, so look for us out there. Uh, any last words there, Phil? Uh, anytime anybody sees uh, you know our our, our snowbiller TV and our snowgoer Canada crew on the trail, always come over and say hi. We got the helmets off. We we love to talk. We love to hear people's stories. You know, we love sledding and we love sledding people. So you know, never hesitate to you know. Come over and say hi to us. We usually try to initiate and come over and see you at your table first or try it with your sleds. But, you know, hey, we, we love to talk sledding with sledders. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Phil Moltol, new uh, host of uh, Snowbird Television. We appreciate uh, your uh, conversation today. Uh, it was great talking to you, and uh, we'll be seeing each other soon, I guess. Um, so I want to thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. It was a real pleasure, and uh, we'll be on the trail real soon, Gord. Yep, look forward to it. Okay, great. That uh, concludes this uh, episode of Snowman Podcast. I uh, hope you liked it. There was uh, there was a ton of uh, uh, Canada-based uh, uh, conversations uh, in this episode, and uh, I want to remind my American uh, listeners that uh, uh, we got uh, another episode coming up uh, in the next day or two uh, with Bruce Olson, uh, the last winner of the uh, International 500 uh, Cross Country Race. Uh, big news is that race is back, and uh, I. We got Bruce coming on uh, with an interview with uh, Hal Armstrong from Snowgore Canada Magazine, and uh, I'm going to be pursuing uh, more people. Um, uh, hopefully, the race director too, uh, Brian Nelson. I'm going to contact him and get him on the line and uh, to talk about uh, this event because uh, it's uh, it's I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, to this uh, event coming back. So, um, this is uh, Gorda Van from the Snowman Podcast, and uh, you can uh, subscribe to this episode. I uh, hope you liked it. And uh, from uh, iTunes, uh, you can subscribe uh, from Snowman Podcast on iTunes, and also on SoundCloud. You can follow um, this, uh, this podcast, Snowman Podcast, on 
SoundCloud. Um, and uh, uh, please share it with your friends. Um, I'm, I'm sure they'll like it. Uh, there's some uh, good information uh, from Craig and, uh, in there. So uh, share it with your friends. And uh, if you need to uh, contact me, I can be contacted at snowmobilingpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Gorda Van, Snowboy Podcast. Talk to you soon.